Happy Easter. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. So glad to have you, and we're so thrilled for this weekend and all the services that we're conducting. God has been meeting us here each time, and I know you sense his presence in this service as well. Welcome if you're joining us online. We're so thrilled you've joined us, and we're happy to have you. Uh, I've got good news for you. You ready? Jesus Christ is alive and he is well. Isn't it great? Isn't that good news? It's absolutely true. He's on, the, he's on the throne of the universe. He reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is sovereign over all that exists. That includes your life and my life. You say, well, he's not Lord of my life. Oh, yes. Yeah, he's sovereign over your life too. You may just not know it yet, but he's in control. And we can be confident today because he's a good God. He has great plans for you. And as you trust Place your faith in him. You'll never be disappointed. Amen? Amen. Thank God. Well, uh, I want to tell you a story. In 1945, a gentleman by the name of William Diddle, D-I-D-D-L-E, Diddle, designed a nine-hole golf course for the Benton County Country Club in Fowler, Indiana. That's over in west central Indiana near Lafayette, my wife's hometown, Fowler. And Since that time with the nine-hole course there on the country club, they've had a special celebration to recognize the founders of the city and this development of this course. They call it, they warmly call it, fondly call it, Diddle Day. It's hard to say that with a straight face, of course. But on Diddle Day, they have a big golf scramble and some other festivities, and it's a great time. My father-in-law, who uh, lived in Fowler for most of his life, his name is Vic Lowerman, and he had a tea time. Let me just, uh, let me just uh, set this scene up for you if I can. Uh, the clubhouse, you know, sat there in a prominent location at the country club. To the right of, of, the, of, the, of the clubhouse, about 30 yards, is the number one tee. And to the left, about 30 yards of the, of the, of the, uh, the house there, is uh, the nine, number nine green. And you do have a sight line between the first tee and the ninth green with the clubhouse between. And so my father-in-law stepped up to the tee. It was his tee time. There was a big gallery there. It was a big day. You know, it's diddle day. And so there's about 50 people in the gallery watching this. And he says to himself, I think I'm really going to show off here. And I'm really going to send that ball out there. And so I said, he told me, and I quote, I just decided to put a little more extra mustard on it. He wanted to let people see how far he could hit his driver. Okay. Well, he overswung. And those of you who golf a little bit more than I do might be able to explain the phenomenon of what happened next. I mean, he's facing this way, and he's trying to drive the ball down the fairway this way, but the ball pops straight up in the air. Now, I mean, he, he, he hit it hard, but it popped straight up in the air and went really high in the air, and it starts then hooking that direction, and it goes over the top of the clubhouse, and is headed to the ninth green. There are two guys standing there trying to put out on the ninth green, and so people start yelling, four! And they all kind of, you know, brace themselves. They can't imagine where a ball might be coming from <laughs> at that point. The ball lands on the ninth green, rolls about nine feet, and goes in the hole. Place goes crazy. Everybody who saw it, it was astonishing. Well, it was, it was so dramatic that they, they paused the golf scramble, stopped the festivities. Someone ran inside of the clubhouse and got the certificate and filled out a new 
certificate, you know, new course record. Vic Larman won, one stroke. The guy teed off on one and hold out on nine with one swing. Amazing. Well, that's one of the stories in our family. And let me ask you a question that may be pertinent to the story and to our day today. How do we know what happened? How do we know that story I just told you really happened? I mean, I wasn't there. My wife Beth wasn't there. We didn't see it. I didn't see it with my own eyes. So how do I, how do I know? How have I come to believe that that really happened? I can tell you why I believe it. Because of the reliability of the witnesses who actually saw it. I mean, I know the guy who hit the ball. I know his wife. Uh, some of Beth's first cousins, other family members were there in the gallery. They saw it. They've given witness to it. Other friends and associates, casual and, and closer, gave witness to it. And so that's how I've come to believe that it actually happened. And I mean, that's a very dramatic... I mean, if you, if you set up the scenario and you put a driver in somebody's hands, how many, to, how many balls would you have to hit to do that? I mean, it's just... It's a, it's a wild thing. But I believe it happened because of the reliable witnesses. The biblical record also offers many details about Christ's death and resurrection. I want to read a reference to you this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the church at Corinth, and he's reminding them of the most important thing in the Christian faith, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what he said in verse 3. He said, For what I received, I passed on to you, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So here we have the witness of the great apostle Paul, who's reminding people this, uh, this was written approximately 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And he's reminding the, the folks in Corinth that Jesus indeed was raised from the dead. And eyewitnesses saw him as many as 500 at one time. Let me just share a chronological series of events that we have in the New Testament record of these, of these things. Authentic, reliable witnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. For example, there were many eyewitnesses at the, at the death of Jesus, including family members, disciples, Romans, hostile accusers. You, you may recall that there was three hours of darkness that fell over the world. A mighty earthquake occurred when Jesus died. Rocks split, the Bible says. Graves were opened. The curtain in the temple tore in two from top to bottom. We know that Jesus' followers showed deep sorrow. We know the crowds were silenced. We know that many people beat their chests. And I just submit to you that unless these unusual events had occurred, as the biblical records state they did, we, we may not be inclined to believe this account. But many saw him die. There was no doubt that Jesus was dead, not in the mind of Pontius Pilate, not in the mind of the Roman centurion who was in charge of the execution squad. 
There were two members of the ruling Jewish administration from the Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea was one of these guys who requested Pilate for the body of Jesus for burial. Joseph and then ultimately Nicodemus, both members of the Sanhedrin, buried Jesus' body before the Sabbath began. Chief priests next met with Pilate to demand a guard on the tomb. This is often forgotten. And they sealed the tomb. They rolled this huge stone in front of it. They put a Roman seal on it, posted guards there. They had no doubt that he was dead, and they wanted to keep him in that tomb. Female relatives and followers of Jesus were convinced that he was was dead. We know that they were organizing spices and myrrh and, and other perfumes to further prepare the body for burial. There were saints who were raised from the dead to physical life, which I just mentioned from Romans 15, as Paul reports it, that at the time of Jesus' death, that people who had recently died, these were dead, righteous servants of God, were resuscitated back to life and went stumbling back into Jerusalem. This is an amazing thing, probably impacting thousands of people ultimately by the witness that they gave. After an earthquake, an angel had descended to move the stone door covering the tomb. Women disciples had set out from home with their spices early in the morning while it was still dark. But before they arrived, this angel had, had, had shown up at the tomb, and this angel actually rolled the stone away, a stone that would require several men to move it because of its, its weight and cumbersome. And I can imagine an angel with the slightest touch of his divine finger rolling the stone away, and the Roman guards there standing watch were completely and totally freaked out, as you would have been as well. When the women arrived before, be, before it's daylight, they find these soldiers, they're either stunned and shocked and just standing in place, or they're lying in a corner in the fetal position because they are totally overwhelmed by this experience. We know that angels then spoke to the women. They confirmed Jesus' resurrection, that he'd gone to Galilee, as he had said. This is where the famous statement from the angels that we all are familiar with when they said, why do you seek the living among the dead? It's a powerful, powerful moment. When, they, when the women reported this to the disciples, they didn't believe it. Mary Magdalene told them, all we know is Jesus' body was gone. Then Peter and John ran to the tomb to see for themselves. Uh, this is recorded in John's gospel. John is the author of John's gospel. And Peter and John ran to the tomb that morning. And John makes us clear, he wants to make it clear in his gospel that he ran ahead of Peter as he describes it. So in other words, he wants us all to know that he's a faster runner than Peter. Okay, we got it. You're faster. When John, when John gets there, he peers in the tomb and he believes. Peter looks in and he's not sure. He's wondering about this. And you can understand it, can't you? I mean, this is an amazing miracle. Where have you ever heard of this happening? This doesn't happen in the, in the real world. And so they're trying to get their minds around the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrected Christ then first appeared to Mary Magdalene near the tomb and later to more women disciples. Mary thought he was the gardener. Where have you taken him, she asked. And then Jesus finally says her name, and when he says her name, she recognizes his voice. My Lord and my God, she runs to him. Then the disciples, who didn't believe Mary, uh, when she told them Jesus appeared to her, in the meantime, Jesus appears to a group of women followers, and he reminds them, I'm going to Galilee. Tell the brothers to meet me in Galilee. Then there were, there, there were guards who were bribed 
with large sums of money. This is by the chief priests, the elders, the Sanhedrin. The only guys in the whole scriptural narrative who suggest that Jesus was not raised from the dead were guys who were bribed to lie about it. It's an important factor. Jesus then appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. One of these guys' name was Cleopas. And so Jesus is, is expounding on the prophecies of Messiah from the scripture. He shares a meal with these guys. Uh, he helps them understand that he is the resurrected Christ. And they race back to tell the other disciples, hey, we met him on the road to Emmaus. And the Emmaus disciples then spoke to the 11. They, they get back and tell 11, but we know Thomas was not present. So one of the disciples, Thomas, was absent on that occasion. Then Jesus appeared and allowed, allowed the disciples to touch him. This is a, a moment sometime later when the disciples are all in a house together, and suddenly Jesus appears in the middle of the room. Scared them. He appears to them, and the first thing they do together is they eat a meal together. Now, this is this is an important issue, at least for me and maybe for some of you, because it just means that in our glorified, resurrected bodies that we are going to inherit someday, we're going to be able to eat. Eating's going to be part of the eternal kingdom. Thank God. You know, Chick, Chick-fil-A forever. It's, uh... One of our staff told me this morning, you know, we served sandwiches last night. We served over uh, about 1,325 chicken sandwiches last night. We were, at one point, we were concerned we were going to run out of sandwiches, and so we kept calling Chick-fil-A, and God bless them. I don't know how many sandwiches they can make, but they did over 1,300 last night, and we had 12 baskets full left over. It was something. (laughs) So he appears to them in physical form. He allows them to touch his hands and his side and his feet, and and he also, he, he rebuked them for not believing sooner. Then, then eight days later, Jesus appears again, and he did many things, the Bible says, to convince them that he was alive. Now, in this me- meeting, eight days later, Thomas is present. So Thomas finally shows up. Thomas has been known in history now as the doubter because he told them, the other disciples saying, he's alive. We saw him, and Thomas says, I will not believe until I see him with my own eyes and feel with my own hands. Okay. So Jesus shows up with Thomas, and he says, here I am. Look me over, touch me. I know you've been doubting. I was asked to preach in a small church in Rossville, Indiana years ago at a Methodist church there, a little church. And the pastor there had a friend he introduced me to. He was another pastor in the community uh, of the Presbyterian church. And his name was Thomas Thomas. First name was Thomas, his last name was Thomas. And my Methodist friend had nicknamed him the double doubter which I'm not sure he appreciated, but that's how he introduced me to him. And so now Thomas is in. He believes. Then the disciples traveled to Galilee, where Jesus met them on the mountain. He appeared to them by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. By this time, we know that he has appeared to Peter at least three times. And now we find Jesus on the shore of Galilee, helping the fishermen catch fish. This is Peter now, a little impatient probably that he hasn't seen Jesus for a little bit. So he and six others get in a boat and go fishing all night. That's their occupation prior to Jesus. And as they're coming into shore at the end of the night, as the dawn is breaking, Jesus is standing on the shore. And he says, hey, guys, catching any? Which is what you say to a bunch of guys in a fishing boat. And they say, we've been out all night. We haven't caught anything. And Jesus said, well, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. 
Peter politely says, look, there are no fish. We've been fishing all night. They're not available. Jesus said, cast your nets on the other side. And they did so. And they caught so many fish, they almost sank the boat. That's when Peter looked at Jesus a little more closely and he said, Lord, is that you? And he dove in the water and swam to Jesus. It's a powerful, powerful moment. Then we know that more than 500 brethren saw Christ in Galilee. We've mentioned this a number of times. When Paul reports it to the Corinthians uh, 30 years later, he said, look, he appeared to 500 people. Some of those people are still alive. If you don't believe it, go ask them. They're reliable witnesses. They laid eyes on the resurrected Christ. And some of them are still kicking, so, so talk to them about it. And then there is the half-brothers of Jesus, James and Jude. And initially, Jesus' brothers didn't believe that he was the Christ. That's recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 7. But by the time of the Jerusalem Council, recorded in Acts chapter 15, James, the half-brother of Jesus, has now become the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. So now he believes as well. Fascinating, isn't it? Then additional disciples saw Christ. As Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, probably the 12 disciples, likely numbers of the 120 who were in the upper room at the day of Pentecost, maybe some of the 500 he's referring to, and others as well, I suspect. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem and continued to receive instruction from Jesus for 40 days after the resurrection. The timeline went like this. Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day, and he starts appearing to people that day and continues to appear to people off and on that we have a biblical record of for 40 days. We come all the way to the first chapter of the book of Acts where Jesus now is going to ascend back to the Father, and he's given final instructions, final words to the disciples. And this is, this is after 40 days and Jesus ascends. The last piece of instruction from Jesus is go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the, of, the, of the Father, which is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so these disciples and, and the others totaling 120 people go to this upper room in Jerusalem and they wait for another 10 days until you hit day 50 and the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurs. And we see the, the instruction and the direction of Jesus for 40 days after the resurrection. Powerful. And then finally, one of the most vicious enemies of Jesus and the faith was Saul of Tarsus, who becomes now the greatest defender of the faith in Christ. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, gives his own name as the final witness. On the way to Damascus, he's going there to persecute Christians, to arrest them and imprison them for following Jesus. And on his way, God strikes him blind, and Jesus reveals himself to him. And so the Apostle Paul, now all the way to his death, as a reliable witness to Jesus Christ. Are you okay so far? This is a, this is a chronological listing of, of faithful, reliable witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a person, you're more rational, you, you're more contemplative about life. Uh, it's hard for you to believe these things. They, they seem a bit too, too out there, too mystical, too unreal for you to, to really get your mind around. Could, could, I, could I take a stab at convincing you further? And that is from the reliable witnesses of history. You know, there have been thousands, yea, millions of men and women who have lived in the last 2,000 years of world history who have attached themselves 
to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and have lived a life that literally have shaped history. A, a life of, of conviction, a life of passion, a life of faith that has made a difference in the world. Could I just skim the surface with the names of some of these people? For example, we know we could categorize some of them as activists. Catherine Booth, the co-founder of the Salvation Army. Elizabeth Fry, a prison reformer. Harriet Tubman, described as the Moses of her people. John Woolman, a Quaker abolitionist. Sojourner Truth, a woman abolitionist, a women's rights activist. William Booth, the first general of the Salvation Army. William Wilberforce, an anti-slavery politician in Great Britain who, who advocated for the abolition of, of legalized slavery in Great Britain for decades. And within two weeks of his death, the Parliament of England finally out, outlawed slavery as a legal entity in, in, in that country. Amazing. Then there are denominational founders, Amy Simple McPherson of the Foursquare Church, Alexander Campbell of the Disciples of Christ, Francis Asbury of American Methodism, George Fox of the Friends Church, John Knox of the Presbyterian Church, John Wesley of the Methodist Church, Nicholas von Zinzendorf of the Moravians. Listen, I could preach for the next six months just on the Moravians of Germany in history and the impact they've had on the world. Richard Allen of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Then we've seen evangelists and apologists. And you understand, I'm just, I'm just skimming the surface of these men and women. Billy Graham, the great global evangelist. Billy Sunday, the great American evangelist. Blaise Pascal, Charles Finney, Clement of Alexandria, Dwight L. Moody, George Whitfield, Justin Martyr. These are men and women whose lives sacrificed completely and fully to the belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and selflessly giving their lives to witness to that fact. There were what we might describe as inner travelers, these men who were, and women who were especially pious, who developed the inner life and the intimacy with Christ in their relationship. Andrew Murray and Antony of Egypt, Brother Lawrence, Catherine of Siena, John of the Cross, Oswald Chambers, Teresa of Avila, Thomas Akempis. Some of these names, I'm sure, are at least striking some chord in some of your minds from history. And then, of course, then we have the martyrs. The uncounted number of people, men and women, in the last 2,000 years who literally have given their lives, being faced with a moment, something like this, renounce your faith in Christ. Renounce your conviction about this this resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you will live. Failing to do so, though, you will be put to death, most of which died a horrible, brutal, violent, painful death. Boniface, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Ignatius of Antioch, John Huss, Polycarp, and we could go on for days and weeks with the names of those who have given their lives. There will be people in the world today who will be martyred for Jesus' sake. Let me ask you a question. If you're a thinking person, you're good at critical thinking, and you have trouble with all of this, let me ask you a question. What was it that motivated the saints of history? What is it that sustains the martyrs all the way to the end of their lives? What is it? Mass hysteria? Self-deception? Listen, this is how I go through the world. 
I'll just tell you, I, 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 I go through the world thinking. I'm wired as a kind of a minority in the world. But my whole, my whole existence is basically based on this concept. Let the best idea win. Let the best idea win. What did motivate the saints of history? What has sustained the martyrs? If you've got the answer to that question, that will satisfy the, the answer, the question, more than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that this Lord, this God, this Savior, he really is alive. He was dead and got back up alive, and he's alive right now. And I live for him. I serve him. I'll die for him. If you can come up with an idea that's better than that one, I'm open. Otherwise, I find it hard to explain. Then we have the missionaries, world-changing men and women who've invested their lives. You know, I mentioned the Moravians of Germany. When these, when these cats left Germany to go to various parts of the world to preach the gospel, they took their caskets with them. Who are these people? David Livingstone, Francis Xavier, Hudson Taylor, John Elliott, William Carey. There have been movers and shakers, St. Francis of Assisi, Joan of Arc, that teenage war hero, John Wycliffe, a great Bible translator, Phoebe Palmer, the mother of the holiness movement, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, a name which I have discovered is difficult for me to say out loud without weeping. Musicians and artists and writers, C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, G.K. Chesterton, George Frederick Handel of Handel's Messiah, I would argue the greatest piece of musical literature ever written, Handel's Messiah. Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley, Charles Wesley wrote 7,000 hymns in his life. 7,000. I had a professor at, at my seminary who said to us students one day, if there was no historical record of the Christian faith, there was no Bible, there was no historical record at all of the faith, the life of Jesus, and so forth. He said a systematic, a full systematic theology of the Christian faith could be realized and understood just by reading and studying the 7,000 hymns of Wesley. I ask again, who are these people? Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, or John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. I'm just asking Pastors and preachers and poets and rulers and scholars and scientists and theologians, the greatest minds, you can argue, the greatest minds and the greatest hearts of all of human history devoted to one enduring, sustaining, inspiring truth, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so here we are. We find ourselves with the witness of the biblical reference, and now we also have the witness and testimony of those saints who have gone before us in history. The events around Jesus' resu resurrection, so significant, so, so experienced by such a diverse group of people at di diverse times and places of history, so compelling that it's hard to deny it. But if you still deny it, let me just appeal to you in one more step. We can point to the prophecy fulfilled by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We can 
point to the rock-solid testimony of eyewitnesses, yet the ultimate proof of the resurrection of Jesus as the Savior of mankind is best shown by the change that takes place in individual lives. Therefore, I want to stand before you today and say, I am a reliable witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I met Jesus Christ when I was 16 years old in the month of September in the year 1971. I have had a personal relationship then with Jesus Christ for 52 years. He has been a constant companion, a coach, a counselor, a guide, an encourager, a comforter, an inspiration, and a friend. I know he's alive. I've walked beside him for 52 years. I know Jesus as well as I know my wife. I know his ways. I know his presence. I know his voice. The Bible says, Jesus said, my sheep know me. They hear me. They follow me. The only aspect of my relationship with Jesus that is yet to be realized, and this is the only thing that is left for me to do in my relationship with Jesus, and that is I've never laid eyes on him. But the Bible promises very clearly that my faith one day will become sight. But I can, I can assure you it's not going to be that big of a transition because I know him and he knows me. So you can, you can doubt the resurrection if you want, but I'm a witness. I'm contemporary in, in your world. I'm alive at the same time you're alive. I'm telling you he's alive. And the reason I know that is because of what he's done in my life for 50 years. And the fact that I spoke with him this morning. And I sense his presence near me right now. Jesus is alive. He is absolutely alive. And he is well. And he's interested in us. And he cares about you. And he wants to have an intimate relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants you to be part of his family. He's given himself for you. He died for you. And, and Almighty God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, raised this same Jesus from the dead attested by these faithful and reliable witnesses for all of these years. I wonder how many other witnesses do I have in the room who believe Jesus is alive today? Can I get a witness? Are there other reliable witnesses in the room? We're everywhere. We're everywhere. So, sir, if you're a critically thinking, rational person, and you're honest with yourself, there's more than enough evidence. There's more than enough. Now, here's the good news. You can enjoy and benefit from this relationship as well. Look on the screen with me at Romans chapter 10. This is the Apostle Paul once again. He said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, just as if you'd never sinned. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So there it is. The good news of God's grace is that he extends an invitation to all of us. Maybe you're a person and you have 
You've reached out to Jesus at some point in your life, but you've drifted away. Life has happened. You've become careless. You got distracted. You got enticed away, and you've not been living for Jesus. And now you find yourself in this room. It's Easter Sunday. You, you, you show up at a worship service because someone's invited you to come. And, and uh, you know, it's Easter. Everybody goes to church on Easter. And so you've, you, you've acquiesced and you've, you've, uh, you've arrived here in this moment. Or maybe you've watched online. And here you are. What better day than Easter celebration to come home to your faith, to return to your relationship with Jesus? Oh, I, I've, I've gone too far. I've done too much. I don't, think, I don't think God's interested in me anymore. No, you're wrong about that. God loves you. He is uh, slow to anger. He is rich in mercy. He's long. He's long in mercy and patience. He's ready to receive you again. Maybe you're a person in the room or within the sound of my voice, and you've never taken the first step of faith to profess Jesus as Lord and to believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. Here's an opportunity for you to do that. You don't have to understand it all, but if you sense your need and you call out to God, he'll answer your prayer. Amen? And so would you bow your heads with me? I want to pray with you in just a moment. But if you're in one of those categories I just mentioned, you've been away from God, you need to return to your relationship with God and restore that friendship with God. Or you're a person in the room who needs to take the first step in that direction toward the Lord. Would you just lift your hand where you are, just where you're sitting. It's the only thing I'm going to ask you to do before we pray. Just lift your hand and say, yes, Pastor, I'm someone who'd like to get right with God today. See a few hands going up. Thank you. Thank you, sir. It takes a lot of courage so proud of you. Folks have been coming to, coming to Christ like this all weekend. Just a beautiful expression. Now, everyone, I'd like you to pray out loud with me, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. You pray right after me out loud. There's nothing magical about this prayer, but as I mentioned, if you're sincere and you're reaching out to God, he'll hear you and answer this prayer. I'll just help you with the words. Are you ready? Out loud right after me. Dear gracious God, thank you for all you've done for me. I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And now I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. Lord Jesus, forgive me my sins, all the things I've done wrong. Forgive me. Restore my relationship with you. I want to know you. I want to serve you. So fill me with your Holy Spirit. From this day forward, I've decided to follow Jesus. Thank you for all you've done for me. In Jesus' name, amen.